Hello and welcome to Going Viral. I am David Lim. It is Thursday, the 27th of August. In today's podcast, I will be speaking with Dr. Stephen Riddell. He will discuss immunosuppression, autoimmune diseases, and what these have to do with COVID-19, its treatment, and COVID-19 vaccines. It is an area that is highly relevant to those of us who treat patients with autoimmune diseases or who are immunosuppressed, and as COVID-19 vaccines become more a reality than a dream. Once again, the latest global and local COVID-19 statistics will follow the interview. Before we start, I'd like to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthed.com.au. You can listen to these podcasts on the HealthEd website, or you can download the HealthEd app and access many other learning resources as well. In today's podcast, I will try to understand what autoimmunity and COVID-19 have in common and why it matters. I will be speaking with Dr. Stephen Reddle. Uh, Dr. Reddle, could you please tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Thanks, David. So, so I'm, yeah, as you say, Stephen Riddell, and um, I am a neurologist but with a PhD in immunology, and um, I've ended up with this uh, very interesting and in some ways very fortunate job of uh, treating neuroimmunological disorders, but also focusing on the problems with treatment of uh, neuroimmunological disorders and how uh, immunotherapies themselves generate their own problems. Mm-hmm. And one of those things that's come up recently is, of course, you know, in in a modern first world healthy hygienic society, most of us don't have to do battle with too many outrageously difficult infections. You know, many of the chronic infections have been eliminated from our society. Mm-hmm. And so the immune system's a bit bored, doesn't have much to do. And we almost, I, I think there's probably more people treating patients with immunosuppressive therapies for autoimmune diseases than there are infectious disease doctors treating people with infections in Australia. So other than the common short-lived infections such as pneumonia or mm-hmm. urinary, urinary tract infections or things like that that are by and large not complex infections. But of course COVID's come along and suddenly the world's having to face a, you know, a, a new infection what's called a, a neoantigen, right? one that we haven't seen before, one that our immune system hasn't been primed to deal with before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's a problem for everybody, particularly if you're older. Uh, mm-hmm. And one of the questions that's arisen is, is it a particularly a problem for people whose immune systems are in some ways weakened or immunosuppressed? And initially we didn't know, right, because there wasn't any data. And there was speculation that part of the problem of COVID was that the immune system reacted so violently to it yeah. that um, maybe immunotherapies would be helpful. Mm-hmm. And on the flip side, the instinctive response and 
well-informed instinctive response is that the immune system's there to do something, and one of those things that's there to do is to fight infections. By the way, for your listeners, another of those things that's there to do is to fight cancers. Mm-hmm. And so, as a general rule, if you don't know, then assume that people who are immunosuppressed are probably not going to do so well against a new infection. And yeah. so there's some emerging data on that, that that does help us understand what is likely to happen with COVID. And it also just reminds us a little bit about the pros and cons and the difficulties with treating people with immunotherapies, which of course is not just in neurology, it's across the board, it's in, in gastroenterology and inflammatory bowel disease, it's in, it's in you know, rheumatology, it's in GP land with funny rashes and things like mm-hmm. that that you know, never get referred to people such as myself. Maybe you could just expand on what autoimmunity really is. Generally, autoimmunity and why you get it is not fully understood. Some of it's genetic. Some of it's probably teleological, right? That in any given population, you want some people to have a pretty active immune system so that they can potentially fight off this or that bug that comes along. In some people, it's due to a failure of the immune system. So, you know, you can have abnormalities that are both prone to immunodeficiency and autoimmunity. Mm-hmm. Because because the whole immune system's poorly constructed or regulated, and in some people it's probably just differences, right? So there are there are things in your genetic system and also in your immune regulatory system that probably exist to provide diversity of the immunological repertoire across the human species. So even if even if one in a hundred of us gets really bad COVID, you know, the other 99% survive, right? And those mutations or differences, I prefer to say differences, right? Because one of the things about evolution is that as long as a proportion of the population survives any crisis, you're doing all right. and, And sometimes the point is to have diversity such that even though it might not be advantageous in a time of, let's say, plenty, Right, it might be advantageous in a time of stress. And so, you know, there are things in the population that make you slightly more prone to, say, certain infections, but much more resistant to other infections, right? So mm-hmm. there's, there's, there's something that makes you almost immune to AIDS, mm-hmm. HIV AIDS, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, it itself probably makes you a bit more prone to autoimmunity, right? And so, you know, even if AIDS had occurred in a previous era and maybe wiped out 80 or 90% of the world's population, you know, and, and, you know, plague wiped out a third of the world's population where it hit, the next time plague came around, not that many people died because the susceptible part of the population had died off. And then autoimmunity can also be due to probably not enough things for the immune system to do that gets a bit bored. So there's increasing evidence that that if you're exposed to childhood bacterial infections, you're less likely to get autoimmunity. And most autoimmunity, for instance, is relatively rare in outback territory Australian Aboriginal populations, but they get a lot more bacterial infections, you know, chronic blue ear, chronic sinusitis, that sort of stuff. And they're they're really the only part of the Australian population we see infection-associated autoimmune diseases such as rheumatic rheumatic heart disease or Sydenham's chorea. You know, Sydenham's chorea is the neurological one. Rheumatic heart disease is one my cardiologist friends see. 
Now, I've only ever seen Sydenham's chorea in Australian Aboriginal population, right? and that's due to chronic streptococcal infection, right? and an immune response to that chronic streptococcal infection. And so, you know, there's a there's also so so there's a sort of theory that you know it's the healthy germ hypothesis. So if you see enough germs as a kid, you're less likely to get an immunity, but you're more likely to get, say, bronchiectasis. And then there's probably environmental aspects. You know, sunshine seems to have a regulatory effect on autoimmunity, as does vitamin D, somewhat independently. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they're partly linked. So you know, mm-hmm. more vitamin D seems to be better for autoimmunity. Um, smoking is definitely a trigger for almost all autoimmune diseases, so it increases your risk of rheumatoid arthritis, increases your risk of MS. If you've got MS, it triples your risk of ending up in a nursing home with MS, right? So it not only influences the likelihood of the disease, but also the severity of the autoimmune disease. There's a lot of different aspects to why people get autoimmunity. And then, of course, it runs in families. You know, we see <coughs> we see families with multiple autoimmune diseases. and some of those families are now being slowly found to have mutations in things, but there's also lots of syndromes that are described that are clusters of autoimmunity that that are not yet fully sorted out. So, you know, at one end of the spectrum, there's a cluster of patients where you see a lot of lupus and rheumatoid arthritis in the family. At the other end, there's a lot of clusters where you see a lot of organ-specific autoimmunity, so say thyroid, gastric or parietal cell antibodies, which lead to pernicious anemia vitiligo or cluster at that end and then there's another group that have focal inflammatory autoimmunity such as ms or inflammatory bowel disease and that's a common cluster and and that was that was described by ian mckay and mcfarlane burnett you know mcfarlane burnett's where we get the mac burnett institute in melbourne who got the nobel prize for that tell me if there's anything in common with um the inflammatory responses that COVID 19 has and the autoimmunity that actually happens in diseases like SLE or rheumatoid arthritis, are there similar uh, mechanisms uh, shared between these two? Look, uh, David, at the at the heart of immunology is that there's a number of conserved mechanisms that underlie the response to COVID and also underlie autoimmunity. They're not, just by and large, directly related in the sense that mm-hmm. So far, there's relatively little evidence that COVID-19 triggers a lot of autoimmunity. It does trigger a bit, and I'll come to that. But on a broader level, the the mechanisms that are there to fight off infections and also to recognise something that's an infection or not an infection and to mount a specific response using both T-cells against cut-up bits of the protein and antibodies against, so in this case, you know, the spike protein that's on the outside of the the COVID-19, but also proteins that are on the inside of the COVID-19 that are expressed in the cells that are infected. And you want to eliminate those cells that are infected, be they on your throat or your nose. And then also the the specific uh, adaptive antibody response that, you know, recognises something as foreign and then makes a bunch of antibodies that bind to it and let it be labelled or what's called opsonised uh, and targeted against and then destroyed by both the antibodies themselves and things like complement that attach to the antibodies and um, phagocytes that mop up uh, whatever's tagged by the antibodies and then those phagocytes mm-hmm. you know, are able to basically chew it up, burp and spit it out as digested <laughs> particles. Right? Mm-hmm. So, 
So, you know, the, the, the immune system's there for a purpose and it's able to firstly recognise that something's bad for you, it's foreign. Yeah. And and that's partly because it hasn't seen it before. So it says, when in doubt, if I haven't seen it before, it's probably foreign. And then another clue to the immune system that says, yep, it's foreign, right, is that cells with it start dying. And when they start dying, they express what are called danger signals or what are called pattern recognition signals. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole bunch of those. They've really been one of the big discoveries of the last sort of 20 years. And to a certain extent, post-date, I think quite a lot of your listeners medical student education about immunology. So, you know, we all knew about T and B cells, but not all of us were taught about danger signals and pattern yeah. recognition signals. Mm-hmm. And so those, those those in conjunction with the actual antigen say to the immune system, yep, it's bad, you better mount a response to it. And then, of course, you know, you get adaptive T and B cell responses and a whole bunch of other, you know, non-adaptive, but sort of what are called innate immunity responses. And then when it comes to COVID, if you're immunosuppressed, you generally don't mount as good a proliferative response, particularly depending on which drugs you're on, to the uh, the new antigen, the virus here. And so, in the context of a in the context of an immunosuppressed patient on steroids, and that's mm-hmm. you know, obviously the most common thing, right? There's now some pretty good evidence from looking at the Italian population. Of course, they've had you know terrible COVID in Italy, and lots of deaths too. You know, the system was really overwhelmed, so many more deaths per per infected person. Not probably not just because they didn't diagnose infected per, people you know, because a lot of people didn't get tested, but probably a real effect that they just ran out of capacity in the hospitals. Mm-hmm. And so in people who have been on steroids, in at least in the neurology population, um, you're, you're about two or three times as likely, uh, up to six times as likely in one study, to develop severe COVID. And what severe COVID means oh. is basically hospitalised or dead. So steroids, before you see COVID, impede your immune response to impede your immune response to COVID and presuming it doesn't make you more likely to actually encounter COVID and there is an argument for that that the people who are on steroids probably went to the doctor or the hospital more. But leaving that aside, it also seems to make you much more likely to actually get a, a, a serious or fatal dose of COVID. In other words, it gets in and kills you better than if you had an intact immune system. But on the flip side to that, big UK study that looked at a bunch of possible treatments against COVID yeah. found that found that dexamethasone, which is another steroid, reduces your risk of actually dying once you've got severe COVID, right? And that's probably because there are some people who generate such a bad inflammatory response in their mm-hmm. lungs and end up with ARDS, which is basically, you know, solidified lungs full of fluid and inflammation. Mm-hmm. Dexamethasone reduces that likelihood, but only a bit. It reduces the risk of dying by about 10%, from about mm-hmm. 22% to about 20%, and okay. only only in that proportion of the population that already have COVID sufficiently severely that they require oxygen, either by mask or by ventilator. Mm-hmm. And so if you, if you give it to people who've got mild COVID, it actually makes it worse. There's a bit of a duopoly there. You know, If you're on steroids, you're more likely to get it, but if you're already pretty damn sick, maybe the steroids will make the ventilator work a bit better while you, while your immune system clears it. See, but I guess that brings to my mind various immunomodulating drugs that we may use in general practice, you know, for various forms of arthritis or colitis. 
and medications we use for patients with transplants that dampen down the immune system. Do they have any impact on this? Yeah, so look, the you know, as you can imagine, the number of papers on this coming out is increasing by the hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the data is so far fairly incomplete, and a lot of the early data was a bit ad hoc. So it was, you know, 60 patients on 13 different therapies seen at, um, you know, New York Hospital where they had a lot or, you know, Northern, Northern Italian hospitals where they had a lot. And as mm-hmm. time's gone on, the populations that are being infected are less and less first world, and so less and less of these sorts of drugs anyway. So first first thing to say is we, we don't yet have all the data that we need. If you brought, by and large look at general effects of immunosuppressive drugs on infections generally, which I think is not a bad place to start because, mm-hmm. you know, we've had that data for many years and it's much more systematic. Right. As a a general rule, being on steroids, and there's an arbitrary cutoff of more than seven and more than or equal to seven and a half milligrams, and then another arbitrary cutoff of prednisone, sorry, and and another arbitrary cutoff of more than 20 milligrams of prednisone. If you're on more than seven and a half milligrams of prednisone or equal to, your risk of infection generally, when I say infection, of serious infection requiring hospitalisation. Mm-hmm. generally goes up by about 1.5-fold. And, you know, in an overall population analysis, you know, steroids for, say, giant cell arteritis or, mm-hmm. or PMR, which is something a, G, a GP would treat, yep. right, increases the risk of death by about 1.2-fold right, in the next year. Okay. So, in a year. So, yeah, yeah. Okay. So it increases the risk of death by about 20%. Yep. Um, and that's partly infections, it's partly diabetes, hypertension, heart attack, falls, osteoporosis, fractures, you know, <laughs> whole mashup. The risk, the risk with your standard lower level immunosuppressive drugs, what we call the antiproliferative or steroids bearing drugs such as methotrexate, mycosanolate, mm-hmm. leflunamide, azathioprine or imuran, by and large in the rheumatology populations they increase the risk of serious infections by about 1.2 fold versus 1.5 fold for steroids. <laughs> Which is why as a general rule we prefer people to be on these drugs long term but they often take longer to work. The, the transplant literature is unclear yet with COVID but because transplant is what's called an alloantigen, you know, that, that basically somebody stuck something that's foreign into you, they, the drugs work a bit differently but they also do definitely increase the risk of infections and of cancers and so we assume but we don't yet know for sure that it's likely that those patients will mount a less adequate response to COVID if they're exposed. Um, there's one particular group of drugs that are worth mentioning which mm-hmm. is this, what are called the CD20 monoclonal drugs. So these are things that knock out B cells and examples are rituximab which is used for lots of rheumatological indications and uh, a few other things used a bit in neurology mm-hmm. and uh, ocrelizumab which is another one and of course they're also used in haematology patients for lymphomas and CLL and things like that mm-hmm. and and at least in the neurological application it's clear now that they do increase the risk of severe COVID uh, by depending which country, and it's been shown in a couple of countries now, somewhere between about two-fold and 3.5-fold. Mm, yes, right. 
Mm. Right. So they seem to be the worst of the drugs. And that's probably because if you don't have B cells, you can't mount a new response to an antigen. Mm-hmm. Right. So, mm-hmm. so if you've if you've seen an antigen before, so it's a familiar antigen. In other words, when you see it again, it's a, what's called a secondary uh, vaccine response or a secondary immunological response. Mm-hmm. You've already got a bunch of stable cells called plasma cells that already make antibodies to that. So, David, I trust that you've been vaccinated appropriately according to the recommendations, and so you'll have mm-hmm. antibodies. You'll have plasma cells that already make antibodies to tetanus. Yep. Probably the pneumococcus yep. to flu. Now, the the next year's flu or the next year's pneumococcus might be a bit different to last year's flu or pneumococcus, but some of the antibodies will still work against it. And those antibodies are made by plasma cells, and mm-hmm. plasma cells are not affected by these CD20 drugs that target okay. B cells because plasma cells okay. are down the track from B cells. Okay. But if you've if you've never seen something before. It's only B cells that can learn to make a new anti a new antibody mm-hmm. against a new mm-hmm. antigen, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so you don't make a good response to a new antigen, even though such as COVID, because COVID's never yep. been seen before. Yeah. Uh, and so the CD20 drugs are a little bit sketchy at the moment in terms of our desire to put lots of people on them. But mm-hmm. you know, but we we they're very good drugs. They're very effective drugs. They're absolutely critical for things like lymphoma, and for certain. Neuroimmunological conditions, they're the best drugs, right? So we'll continue to use them, mm. but we might have to find ways to vaccinate people when a vaccine comes out because it's likely that they won't make a normal response, right? And if you think about it down the track, yeah. in a year, and I'm, I'm pretty convinced that there will be vaccines because we've actually made vaccines before to other coronaviruses, and we know that, you know, there's four other coronaviruses that circulate widely through the human population. Yeah, it causes us colds or something. Yeah, right? correct. Just, 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 yeah. And, and, you know, the, there's four other ones that circulate and presumably they've done what this one's doing to the population, but yeah, we don't have an institutional memory of it when they first evolved. And so, you know, antibodies and T cell responses to the spike protein, which is what all the mm-hmm. vaccines are being made against, uh, do, do neutralize the virus and do protect you. And so, but we know that they come around and around, so we'll probably find that this one does the same thing. We'll probably find it comes back if, in 10 years, but because we've already got an immune response, it'll be a cold rather than a potentially lethal infection. But if you think about the patients that we've already got on, you know, the CD20 drugs, and in neurology, there's about 5,000 patients on these drugs in Australia. Mm-hmm. So that's quite a lot. You know, you think about plus the hematology population, the rheumatology population, probably 20, 30, 50,000 mm-hmm. people on these drugs. Mm. Right. None of them are going to respond well to vaccines when it comes out. So they're going to be a tricky population because, you know, down the track, the rest of us are going to be vaccinated. Suddenly we want to go to the pub and talk really loudly and mm. put, put our arms around each other and sing and then go to travel to Brazil and come back or US. And, um, you know, we're going to bring COVID back and then there's going to be this population that don't have mm. a good immune response to it. And that's going to be tricky. Stephen, before you go any further, can you just name those drugs again? Do- so, so the main ones, the main B cell drugs that are used uh, are rituximab, ocrelizumab, uh, O-C-R-E-L-I-Z-U-M-A-B, and ofatumumab. Yeah, which is not to say they shouldn't be used, right? But it's just mm-hmm. that that we're going to have to be cautious about this particular population. And rituximab now has some generics, so we're starting to use some generic versions of that, but it'll still be known. The people think, you know, will still know themselves as being on rituximab. 
Uh, apart from these drugs, are there any other drugs that are of a concern for COVID-19? I'm sure there are, but they may not be in my field. So, okay. Okay. you know, there's, 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 of course, anybody who's receiving serious chemotherapy. So concurrent cancer or concurrent chemotherapy is a, is a definite risk for COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And, and again, those drugs are typically immunosuppressive, particularly things like cyclophosphamide, which is a common part of hematological breast. I'm sure it's part of others, but it's not my, not my field. And there are other immune drugs that knock out substantial proportions of lymphocytes. You know, uh, uh, they're pretty rare. Most GPs wouldn't encounter them. There's drugs that probably won't have as bad an effect. So, you know, there's a group of drugs called the TNF inhibitors. You know, Humira is one of the trade names. They generally don't seem to have much of a problem in terms of viral infections. Oh, good. With the exception of shingles. Right, they do, they do increase the risk mm-hmm. of shingles a bit. But, um, you know, there's a lot of people on those drugs for rheumatological causes, and that probably, uh, and certainly from the preliminary data so far, doesn't seem to be a big risk. Good. Now, Stephen, I'm just going to range a little bit because I've just only read a, an article um, looking at the fact that we've always known that some viruses actually kick off, if you like, an autoimmune response uh, causing sicknesses like SLE, RA, Hashimoto's, and I think um, drug, um, viruses like EBV, CME, some of the PARPA viruses have been implicated. And just wondering um, whether, you know, some this author had looked at the fact that SARS-CoV-2 could act as a triggering factor for the development of a rapid immune uh, dysregulation, possibly leading to part of the interstitial pneumonia and the respiratory failure. Um, what do you think of that? Yeah, look, I haven't read the particular paper you're, I think, talking about. Mm-hmm. The, if you look at those things like SLE, a lot of patients who first develop it do report an infection of some sort in prior months, right? But there's always the question about whether the person was going to get SLE anyway. And infections generally trigger a flare in SLE, so maybe it was just that they were on the trajectory and then the infection tipped them over the level from subclinical to clinical. So that's been raised a lot in the past and not always terribly well substantiated for general short-lived infections that the body can control. There's definitely evidence for EBV, Mm -hmm. Epstein-Barr virus, which is Mm -hmm. the one that infects B cells, at least triggering or being associated with MS. So it's very rare to get MS before you get EBV in your lifetime. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So there's definitely an effect, but there are patients who get definite MS who don't have EBV, so it's not causal as such. It's probably just what's called highly permissive. In other words, because it actually infects certain lymphocytes, it probably stuffs, stuffs up the regulation of whatever it is that drives MS. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, on the other hand, there's definitely cases where short-lived immune responses mm-hmm. are, are triggered by, you know, what the U.S. Air Force would call collateral damage. Mm-hmm. So what what that is is that you get infected by a bug, yep. the immune system attacks it. Yep. It looks it looks similar to an immune. It looks similar to an antigen expressed on something that you want, 
mm-hmm. you know, it's such as a nerve cell. Right. Mm-hmm. And because it's because the immune system's so primed with the danger signals that associate with the infection, it overcomes its normal reticence to attack yourself and has a crack at say your nerve cells. <laughs> and if it in in adults the commonest form of that is something called Guillain Barre syndrome, which is mm-hmm. where Mm-hmm. You know, all the peripheral nerves are attacked and people can end up very weak or even paralysed or occasionally dead. And the interesting thing about that is that as the infection resolves, the immune disease comes up. But then the immune disease also turns off, so it doesn't become a chronic immune disease. It's a short-lived attack on all the peripheral nerves and then basically the immune system says whoops and goes back into you know, hibernation as far as attacking the peripheral nerve Mm-hmm. Cells goes, mm-hmm. and so it's a one-off that only lasts a couple of weeks, even though the damage can last a lifetime. Mm-hmm. And it it doesn't typically recur, and it also doesn't typically cluster with other autoimmune diseases. Mm-hmm. So it's really a it's really a sort of collateral damage thing. There have been a fair few reports that people with COVID generate something between a short-lived lupus and a yep. short-lived antiphospholipid syndrome, and that's probably because COVID particularly likes to target the endothelial cells, like the little cells on the inside of blood vessels. Mm-hmm. And those cells have a fair bit to do with the pathophysiology of lupus and antiphospholipid syndrome. And so we are seeing more of that sort of short-lived inflammation mm-hmm. and also short-lived severe clotting. So lots of unusual clots, not only in the lungs, but also in the arms and legs. So people, people losing fingers and toes. And also in the also in the brain also in the brain causing strokes. Right. I was always wondering why. I thought it was something else to do with um, causing some kind of a thrombotic uh, event. Uh, because I, I have no idea why. This is this is very interesting. Yeah. So they they get endothelial infection, and then quite a few of them develop effectively para-infectious antiphospholipid antibodies, and you know go on to get all these problems. Right. But mm. it's it's not thus far believed to go on to a chronic state. In other words, okay. once the infection goes away, hopefully, and, and again, we're all learning this as we go along, hopefully the, uh, you know, what's called endotheliopathy, which is driven by those sort of lupusy endophospholipid antibodies that you're talking about, hopefully those will settle down. I want to go back to the point about vaccination and people on the drugs that suppress the B cells and that they probably wouldn't respond. Are vaccinations actually contraindicated in these patients or are they just useless? Good question. So it's a very important point and one that's good of you to raise it because it's always worth reminding, particularly GPs, that, and we always tell our patients this but they forget, that, that vaccinations deserve special care in the context of immunosuppression generally. Mm-hmm. And the, the, one that, the ones that particularly concern us are live vaccinations, right? Because you've got an immu- a suppressed immune system, and mm-hmm. the live vaccinations are designed to be a weak virus. Yeah. Um, and that weak or, or, or bacteria, and that weak weakened virus or bacteria does not typically cause serious clinical disease, but does induce a vaccination response in your mm-hmm. average punter. There's always exceptions, right? You know. Sometimes you find out that somebody's got an unknown immunodeficiency state when you vaccinate them with, say, BCG, and they suddenly get it all over. Mm-hmm. But leaving that aside, the key vaccinations that are live uh, in our population, the MMR, the 
Zoster, either it's a chickenpox vaccine in kids mm. or Zostavax in adults. Mm-hmm. And we have unfortunately seen at least one death in Australia due to, you know, uh, uh, considerate, but uh, unfortunately not in this case, remembering not to vaccinate a GP who vaccinated somebody with Zostavax because, you know, they worry about shingles appropriately, increased mm-hmm. risk on immunosuppression, and they got disseminated, uh, they got disseminated Zoster and died. So all of those are particular concerns. And um, the other one, we don't use it much in the population as BCG, but the urologists use it uh, for bladder cancer, of course. There's a couple of rare ones. So, so we're actually doing a BCG trial for COVID-19 in healthcare workers in Australia, I think. I believe we are. And mm-hmm. so what that's talking about is using BCG before they get COVID to... Mm-hmm boost what's called the natural killer part of the immune system mm. and by doing that hope to have more innate response against COVID that gives you more time to mount a adaptive antibody and T-cell response, you know, before the infection gets out of hand. Interesting. But that's not in people who've already got COVID. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, and, and again, you wouldn't give, you definitely wouldn't put somebody who's immunosuppressed on that trial, right, because they can develop mm. disseminated BCG which is like effectively Miller TB by another name, which is bad. So coming back to the non-live vaccinations, as far as I'm aware, most of the vaccines that are being developed for COVID are either non-live or they're, they're a, they are live, but they're a virus that simply doesn't infect humans. Right? So the, the one that is, is the, you know, the AstraZeneca Oxford virus that Australia's signed a sort of memorandum of understanding for, mm-hmm. is actually is actually a live virus, but it's not a virus that's capable of reproducing in human cells. So it should not, in theory, be okay for... It should it should not be, be a problem for immunosuppressed patients, but obviously, you know, that's why you do safety trials. The non-live or non-infectious vir- uh, vac- viral vaccines can be used in immunosuppressive, immunosuppressed patients, and indeed we recommend mm-hmm. that People who are immunosuppressed get as much vaccination as possible because mm. it helps helps their increased risk of infection. Mm-hmm. But in certain circumstances, their vaccine response might not be quite as effective. And mm-hmm. so the, the the general rule is that, that if you can check an antibody level, it's worth doing to see if they've mounted to an immune response. And that particularly with the B-cell drugs, you can still get a vaccine response if you've seen the antigen before. So mm-hmm. if, you've, if you've got, if you're on rituximab or something like that, and you use Fluvax or tetanus tox, tetox vaccine, mm-hmm. you actually see a boost response because they've seen the antigen before. It's a bit different in this case that they've never seen the antigen before. Yeah. As you said, it's the, probably the plasma cells acting up. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, they're the ones that presumably make mm. the booster response. That's really fascinating stuff, Steve. And I've, I've just learned so many new things today. Look, it's a, it's a fascinating field and one that's been, you know, a joy to do. And particularly because, you know, these these, although I'm talking about the downsides of something, these these treatments have, you know, been so effective for mm. conditions that used to be disabling and even, you know, fatal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, rheumatoid arthritis, you know, dramatically increased your risk of death, but also is terribly disabling. M- MS is the same. You know, MS, MS shortens lifespan by more than breast cancer. 
Stephen, could we ever see in the future injecting children with um, bacterial antigens uh, when they are young so that we can reduce the burden of autoimmune disease as we get older? One of the things that I've certainly been thinking about for the last 10 years is mm. how, do we, how do we not just suppress autoimmunity but, you know, dare we say cure it or at least, mm -hmm. or at least change the natural history so that we don't have to continually suppress people. Mm -hmm. and, and we're sort of feeling our way. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, think, I think it's unlikely that there'll be, you know, widespread vaccination of children on an experimental basis for curiosity as to whether it changes mm -hmm. their autoimmunity in 20 years' time. I think that, that <laughs> might not pass Sydney Local Health District ethics. Um, although it's a fascinating question. I'd love to try it if anybody's got some spare children. Um, but, um, and, and, you know, if I, I, I've read about, you know, I've read papers in the 50s from which I got some of my methods, and that was what mm -hmm. they did back in the 50s. They did that sort of thing. Right? Wow. Uh, but, but I do think that we will more and more start to learn about what underpins autoimmunity and mm -hmm. start to take preventative measures for that. Right. And to be honest, you know, the first thing is stop smoking, right, and mm. stop passive smoking. It's something to do with the way antigens are presented to the immune system in conjunction with TARS and things like that. So okay. it seems to be okay. smoking more than, you know, other okay. forms of exposure. So it's not the nicotine, it's the smoke. Mm. And then, you know, one of the things that does concern people who work in immunity a bit is that sunshine and vitamin D are probably important. And, of mm. course, everybody's busy telling people to slip, slop, slap and avoid melanoma, which is also important. Mm -hmm. But probably you need a bit of sunshine, right? Probably complete, complete moon glow sitting in front of an iPod device like all of our kids do mm -hmm. um, and then spending their lives working on Zoom on computers like I do at the moment. I'm sure your colleagues do. Yeah. May, not, may not be conducive to a healthy immune system and, and you know, I'm not saying anything radical here when I say that we probably mm -hmm. should probably should be getting the kids outside more in the sunshine and running around, but maybe not maybe not in the peak of the solar radiation day. So you know, mm -hmm. generally what we advise in the sort of MS context is is definitely get some sun, but get low angle sun in summer, meaning before ten and after four if you're in a daylight saving zone. Fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, it is, and and you know, there's lots more to learn here. You know, another thing that's really curious is why why the increase in peanut allergies, and in fact, whether early exposure to peanuts and things like that is actually less is actually associated with a lower risk of allergies. We don't know, right? But mm, it's yeah. certainly being explored, and some of some of this will be to do with what happens very early in life, and and children children may be too old. It may really be an infant's question. Because I, not long ago I interviewed, uh, I think, Professor Ebling from Melbourne and we were looking at vitamin D in preventing COVID-19, if you like. Mm -hmm. And suddenly I'm beginning to think, oh my goodness, maybe it's doing that through the immune system that you were just talking about. I don't know. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, vitamin D is a master regulator of a whole lot of different immunological processes. Well, there you go. We should have more sunlight. Probably. It's certainly cheap and, cheap and simple, and we live in a country with a fair bit of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's good, clean air as well when we can get out. Yeah. Now, Stephen, look, I just thank you for your precious time. That was just such a masterclass in autoimmune 
disease and just generally thinking about how it affects uh, our bodies and what we need to be careful of, uh, especially when it comes down to our patients and particularly drugs, the vaccination for COVID-19, things we probably wouldn't think about. Thank you. Thank you, David. And uh, I hope that this has triggered a, you know, a few more thoughts and also got to your audience that there's still a whole lot of stuff we don't know. And, mm. Uh, mm. you know, perhaps there's room for talking about this in another 10 years and I suspect there'll still be a lot we don't know then. Anyway, thank you very much. And now for the global and local COVID-19 statistics. From the John Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Centre, we find that the global COVID-19 cases has sadly exceeded another grim milestone. More than 24 million cases of COVID-19 have been reported worldwide. Today, I will be reporting on new cases and deaths in the past day in countries rather than cumulative numbers as different patterns are emerging. India recorded more than 57,000 new cases of COVID-19 yesterday. Brazil, more than 47,000, the USA nearly 38,000 and Colombia had more than 10,000 new cases in the past 24 hours. Global COVID-19 deaths is recorded at 822,167. Brazil tops the sad list of deaths from COVID-19 in the past 24 hours, recording 1,271 deaths. The USA recorded 1,234, India 967, Mexico 650 and Colombia recorded 277 deaths yesterday. In Australia, our cumulative cases of confirmed COVID-19 is recorded at 25,131 with 572 deaths. In the past day, Victoria recorded 113 new cases of COVID-19 and 23 deaths. As expected, the number of new cases continues its downward trend. However, with 539 patients still in hospital, 23 being in ICU and 16 are being ventilated, we can sadly and unfortunately expect significant high daily death rates for some days to come. New South Wales has reported nine new cases, of which five are linked to a CBD cluster and four were in close contact with known cases. Queensland has reported two new cases of COVID-19. Have a good and safe day. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website Go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.